You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 327 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have regular contributor, artist, writer, musician, and our resident social critic, straight from the south of France, J.Q. And we'll be talking with J.Q. about the heat, Macron, Clinton, U.S. politics as experienced in Europe, social politics versus policy politics, workers' rights, the Clinton, socialism, Sanders, the Republic, Trump, social issues and economic issues, Simone Weil, Camus, about the human soul, order, liberty, and mental and emotional comforts, the happiness index as well. We have an EW essay titled Genuine, and an article from the New Yorker magazine by Ariel Levy, titled It Girl Less Bitchy, about Sandra Bernhardt, and a poem called Vendange. And all of this, as is always the case, will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 327 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Yeah. 
genuine. Ladies and gentlemen, all in between and outside these human conscripts, how are you doing? I will tell you something. I feel free as more and more I see that my senses telling me of the omnipresent hypocrisy are indeed accurate. Free to set my sights outward through the inside, disconnected, untethered by fear or a culturally indoctrinated psychology, suppressing me to serve and obey to get ahead, to stay safe and in good grace, like a cat on a hot tin roof. Tennessee's brick and Big Daddy argue and come to terms with the proclivity of humankind to drive and be driven in a context steeped in mendacity. Mendacity. Lies to each other, to ourselves. To sustain something, I suppose. To catapult ahead or to cower in place. To run away or to shut down and wait for it all to click. Click off. And then, if any hope exists, to maybe click back on anew, clear, refreshed, healed, enlightened, somewhat adolescent emotionally, I think. Let's reflect a bit. I think, therefore I am. Descartes perhaps did not know how he should finish that sentence. I am what? I am who? Einstein and Joni Mitchell, where is this place in time and space? Mother Teresa and Malcolm X, is true love selfless? How could one love another if they don't truly love their own self? What is love? Harvey Milk and Josephine Baker, and we must go on without fear, malice, or greed. Ladies and gentlemen and all in between, take heed. Do not beg, do not plead. Salvation is in the soul, it has spirit, is gentle and bold, smiles at the challenges with a lightness and wisdom forever accessible and genuine, like you. Tell me I was building a dream So I followed the mark When there was earth to plow All guns to bear I was always there Right on the job They used to tell me I was building a dream With peace and glory ahead Why should I Standing in this line Waiting for bread Once I built a railroad I made it run Made it race 
against time Once I built a railroad Now it's done Brother Can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower Up to the sun Brick and rivet and line Once I built a tower Now it's done JQ, you old sea dog, is that you? Yeah, of course it's me. Of course it's me. You called me. What are you saying? I thought <laughs> How I was, are you old? I, I'm fine. I'm fi- I guess really not. No, but I'll say I'll say I'm fine. Oh, okay. Do, do we do we need to get into this? Is this going to be a therapy session? <laughs> They're all therapy sessions for me. <laughs> Every one of them. That's why Fair I do enough. it. So. Um, How's it going there? We're talking to JQ. He's an artist, a writer, a musician, our resident social critic, and an old friend. Um, how's it going there in the south of France? That's where he lives. It's going. It's going very hot. <laughs> it's very, very hot. Um, you know, there's there's a a heat wave hitting Europe, and it's very funny for me because I was at a friend's place. Uh, the other evening, and he he's an ex-trekking guide from the Himalayas. He used to lead tourists on Himalayan treks for about 17 years way back in the day, back in the 80s and 90s, and uh, he knows India very well. And he told me that he, you know, he regularly follows India, India newspapers, and they were writing in India about how Europe was suffering from crushing heat and there were record-breaking temperatures. And the two of us who have both spent a lot of time traveling in India agreed that nothing makes any sense anymore when India is writing about heat waves in France. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's yeah. ridiculous. But it went up to uh, not here where I am, but in the southeast. I'm in the southwest, closer to Bordeaux, Toulouse, that region. Uh, but in the southeast, there was one town that recorded a temperature of 48 degrees, which is about Celsius, which is about 118 in Fahrenheit. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. And where I am, it got up to about 41. Celsius. Which is, 
Yeah, which is about forty, which is about a uh, hundred five. And is that with humidity or is it a dry heat? It's a, well here. It's a drier heat, which is I guess coming from Pennsylvania, nice. <laughs> yes, know, comparatively agreeable. Yes, no but doubt about still that. that. Sort of, it's still that sort of like that laugh out loud heat where you know you you walk outside and and it just sucks all the air from your lungs and you 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 just have to crack up and and just say you can't be serious this can't <laughs> be real but in the act of laughing you know you begin to sweat really heavy and then you're soaked and then you just run back inside and find some shade don't you prefer that heat. though don't you prefer that to the the dank cold winters uh actually well Yes, I do. I definitely prefer the climate here in most ways. The one thing I missed from missed from living back in the Northeast is the the clearly marked seasons and the sort of the really truly stunning autumns that we get in in the Northeast of the United States. Um, there's there's that we don't have that here. But I'll take the trade off. You know, I'm in the south of France. It's it's a pretty good deal. And the only time, but the only time I've really experienced heat like I, I did the other day um, was in India because I was there shortly before the monsoon hit in southern India. Uh, and that's just – and after the monsoon hits as well. When was this? What year was, what, what year was this? This is back in about 2000, 2000. I spent a lot of time in India as you know and that was one year where I was there for about six and a half months Right. that year. And uh, yeah, I celebrated the new the new millennium in, in, in India, and uh, it was it was great. But the the heat, it was just it was just absurd. I, you you can't function. You, well, you, the, you know, you, they're they're swimming and in, in bathing suits uh, in Alaska in areas where it never. I mean, because it's so hot, hotter than they've ever experienced it, uh, and you know, uh, ice is melting at a an unbelievable rate. Yeah, things are crazy right now, but you know, it's just cyclical. You know. It's not anything to worry about. These things happen. They come and they go. You know, the pendulum will swim the, swing, swing the other way and everything will be okay. Don't worry about it. Yes, global warming is a hoax perpetrated by God. <laughs> because God's a big jokester. We all know that. God is a member of the Illuminati. That's what the right wing hasn't figured out. Does that mean he's gay? It, he's trans. Trans? <laughs> yes, he's trans. So he's he's a she now. Well, if, I mean, we knew this already. The Hindus have always known it. All of their gods are have a male and a female aspect. Right. Yeah, I know. Same thing with a lot of uh, indigenous people on the North American continent. A lot of those cultures, uh, if you look at, at some of what we found historically, also uh, see that in the higher levels of, of consciousness, the, the, the beings are almost... Um, the, yeah, they're both, as you said, they're, they, they have female and male attributes. Uh, but we look at, you know, for years here in, in the quote unquote progressive part of the world, the, the developed part of the world, is that, you know, is that being freakish? Yeah. Yeah. Boy. Well, the Holy, the Holy Spirit is God in the dress. That's beautiful. I, I, yes. I, I love it. That's, that's wonderful. So, um, talking about heat, talking about God, talking about transgendered folk, uh, all here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours with our good friend JQ in the south of France. I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, maybe not so much of, of a dynamic uh, topic as, as you know we were just 
ruminating. But I, I read an article about your president. Um, well, no, your president. Are uh, you a citizen of France? I don't know if you are. Um, but no. no. Well, so the pre- the president of the the country you live in, uh, Macron. Is that the way to say it? Macron. Yeah, Macron. Young guy. Young guy, right? Forty or something. Uh, what do you think of him? Uh, he's enormously unpopular and with reason. He's 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 a banker's butt boy, basically is what he is. And he presents a smiling face on what is liberalism, which because of the, the radical displacement of the Overton window, people actually think means left. But uh, it's not. I mean, Macron, basically France was in front of a choice that was similar to America, where you had, uh, you know, Trump and Hillary Clinton. Le Pen, uh, right? You had Le Pen... We had Marine Le Pen right. and uh, Macron, and Macron is a Hillary Clinton type who will talk about political correct, politically correct things in order to get people who are of a more left-leaning tendency or more, at least socially, and confound that with a political stance. I mean, this is one of the big problems in America is that people think social politics are policy politics and they're not so they sort of pull a sleight of hand where really nuts and bolts things like tax policy you know serious economic issues and and uh you know everything from workers rights to the minimum wage all of this is wrapped up with well i i'm pro-gay so it's okay even though the moves i make are actually quite right wing there is no left in America. There's liberals, and liberals are actually conservatives. As any European knows, the word liberal means something completely different over here. It means capitalists, really. And you ha- you don't have a viable left anymore, which is why anybody who suggests anything even resembling um, a responsibility on the behalf of the state to, say, help with housing and health care and, and the basic needs of people, just, you know, base-level compassion, nothing really demanding, is called basically a Marxist-Leninist. Which is absurd, you know. Uh, so it's polluted both the left and the right, really. It being it being what? It being I'm sorry, you, you you've lost me. Which which pronoun? Which what sentence did you I say? Said it, it has polluted uh, the the right and the left, and I'm not sure. Oh. The the moving the the displacement of what what is called the Overton window, which is basically the the possible political spectrum that you move on it's it's shifted to the right ever since the 1980s in a very radical way which has been documented and you know and study after study so there, you said there is no left there is no left in america you said there, there are liberals basically yeah. what does that I mean, mean you say liberals are not left in in the historical sense they're not that progressive uh is that what you mean Right. Well, that's one thing. If you if you follow some of the more successful, say, independent YouTube political commentators who have fairly big audiences like Kyle Kalinske or David Pakman uh, or, you know, even the Young Turks, uh, they'll call themselves progressives and they'll say they're on the left. They don't call themselves leftists and they don't call themselves liberals, although the vocabulary has become so screwed up. You know, it's like Bernie Sanders calling himself for a while he called himself a socialist and then he talked about social being a social democrat finally he corrected all of this because technically speaking he's speaking about social democracy or being uh 
uh, a social democrat, not a democratic socialist. I'm sorry, that's the term he used for a while. Um, but let me let me lay this out for you very quickly. Liberal, in fact, if if you say that you're a liberal, it means what you are as a pro-capitalist. So you're probably, in American terms, uh, like center-right, basically. So over here, when you use the word liberal, it leads to a lot of confusion. Because the French have the same word, liberal. And neoliberals are right-wing. So when I speak with Americans and I want to speak about the left, and we talk about being liberal, I have a problem with that. Uh, I don't think of Hillary Clinton, for instance, as being on the left. She's, in terms of European politics, she wouldn't be. She'd be more like a Macron or even a Sarkozy. And you don't like these people? No. I do not like the corporate Democrats uh, who are sellouts. Now, you know, what about that movement against Macron? Uh, what's it called? Um, oh, man. I can't recall now. I'm not good for oh, it. In French, it's the gilet jaune, which basically means the yellow vests. Yellow vests, exactly. I, I know. Yeah. Go ahead. The, the, from what I understand, they're made up of many different factions of of uh, political uh, thought and, and uh, realistic needs, too. You, you know, you have uh, more conservative thinkers as well as more uh, left-leaning progressive thinkers who are part of the Yellow Vest protests against Macron, no? Uh, very true, yeah. You, you, I mean, Macron, you have to understand, he is phenomenally unpopular outside of Fran uh, inside France. But isn't he the last bastion of hope against the populism a movement in you know in the Western world, as a lot of people are seeing, it, in particular in Europe. No, I hope not. I mean, it's hard to say. I'm not. Uh, uh, is he the last hope? I, I that that's sad. What Macron is basically, you know, if if you're over here, his policies don't seem to be very left at all. I mean, if you can remember as an American when Bill Clinton was in office and you were supposed to support him because the right hated him so much and so vehemently and because they played such dirty pool. But at the same time, his vice president was, Naf was NAFTA's hatchet man and he himself was responsible, as responsible as any uh, Republican president ever was for the dismantling of what little welfare state viable welfare state we had, you know, because let's talk a little p political theory. Basically, America to Europe appears to be almost extreme right wing all of the time because they don't have any sort of social welfare in healthcare or in other domains that is serious. We waste a lot of money on these things and it costs people a lot of money, but they've basically fallen for the, the, the main problem with capitalism. Okay, the main problem with capitalism is it creates massive inequality, right? And yet, this is not to be completely against capitalism. Because here in Europe, people agree that it is the greatest motor for abundance ever created in terms of how you run a society. But you can, might think of it as being sort of like electricity, okay, or fire. But let's say electricity. You want it to power your house, but you want it running through insulated wires that are 
very well insulated and outlets that everything under control. You don't want giant Tesla coils shooting blue lightning bolts through your living room and you're trying to plug your toaster into the into that. It'll burn your house down, if you see what I mean. I do. So, Did you just make that up off the top of your head? No, this is, well, this is a metaphor I've used often in, in conversation. I came up with it years ago, so I'm, I'm repeating myself, really. But That's what I figured. The, yeah, the European systems, I'm quoting me, but the <laughs> European systems basically uh, said we ha- they are capitalist economies, which is why I always laugh when I hear these American commentators fooling the American public by saying uh, Europe and its socialism. Well, no, it's not really socialism. It's it's let's call it what it what it is. It's more or less welfare statism, because they recognize capital capitalism creates the abundance, but in areas like healthcare and housing, and it creates such inequalities that you end up with massive amounts of poor people, and that creates instability, which threatens the capitalist system and the social stability. So it's pragmatic. So, you are listening to Troubadours and Rock on Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. So it's it's a question of strategy and pragmatism. You don't go Marxist just because you have, uh, uh, you know, say Medicare for all, as Bernie is promoting in America, but basically a, a single payer health care system. That is not Marxist Leninism. It's, it's it's not even socialism, technically speaking. It's social. But, uh, you know, in the sense that it's good for the community, but it's welfare statism. If you want to call it socialism, OK, it's but it's it's socialism is a very, very broad term. Uh, and the way it's used in America to sort of pigeonhole people as as, you know, we just want to, like, take money from the rich and, and, and punish people for being successful. That's that's not what's happening over here at all. And they're much more stable societies and they it's European societies and all the 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 social democratic states that score highest on the UN happiness index every year. Happiness, happiness. All you people want is happiness. What about production and success via materialist, uh, you know, accumulation? Well, when you, when your society is unbelievably violent, uh, and stressed out and addicted to opiates and people are, are, you know, sucking up fentanyl and shooting each other, I don't know. Is that uh, what's the, happening the, in France now, really? That's what's happening right where you're sitting, and you know it perfectly well. And, you know, there's also all sorts of great things in America because, you know, again, capitalism is a good thing. It does create abundance. But you have to keep it under control. And the America has become the center of a power structure, a global power structure that involves multinational corporations and banks – and that really runs the show. And sadly, the same thing is starting to happen to Europe with the European Union because of the parliament, which is – well, the European Commission actually, which is not elected. And Macron is their baby. you know. Just And these are the power players now. And republicanism in terms of a democratic republic, you know, the type of system that has worked in Europe and in America, is really under a grave threat right now. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know where to take that from here, but if you're talking about Macron, he's a puppet. He's, he's the banker's boy. And it's been clear from day one, even before day one, that that's what he was. Well, okay. But let, let, and I'm, you know, I'm not surprised that you're saying that that's basically what the article I read was, was saying too. He's very savvy though, and he does know how to market himself, but more and more people now in France, uh, are, are disillusioned with. Uh, his approach and even his arrogance a lot of time the way he talks to people uh that are in real need it seems like he's disconnected from their 
their situation. He doesn't he doesn't get what they're what they're struggling with. Uh, but you know, I, we talked about happiness, and the reason I asked you about Macron, and I knew you'd get into also your view as an expatriate living in France. Uh, of what's going on here in the United States, and, and you've done that, and I appreciate it. a nice comparison contrast. Basically, though, you think Macron is more like a Clinton. He's more like a you know a conservative Democrat here in the United States. Um, though he's not a Trump, he's better than Trump, but that's not saying much. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you. About well, he's ha- much smarter. So oh, that's not saying much either. Uh, it's like saying you know. Yeah, but you can be with a smart person being being clever and and having bad ideas is worse. Makes maybe. you actually yeah potentially way more dangerous. Right. Dick Cheney, I think, was way more dangerous than Donald Trump, but that's a whole other discussion. And I could be wrong about that, but that's my general impression. Do you get the sense that your fellow Americans here on the continent uh, are? Are following Trump or supportive of Trump based on what you're reading and, and, and hearing in, in France? That well, wait a second. That that people in America are supportive of Trump? Yeah. Well, none of my friends are. None of the people I know. None of the people I write to or Skype with, or <laughs> you know. Do, do you get the sense that he's a popular president? No. No, I no. And the U.S. the people here you don't believe are, are happy with them based on what you're seeing and reading and hearing there in France. Yeah, but, but uh, you know, I, I can't, my personal experience is, is based on the types of people I know and communicate with. I mean, if you'd ask about my experience in the media, I, I have seen some poll numbers and I'm always shocked by how popular he is, but it's still well below 50%. You know, it's, 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 it's so it's hard to call him popular. I mean, I, unless I'm mistaken, according to polls, if you just ask, uh, if you just think of favorability rates, whether somebody has a positive or negative impression of a given politician, Bernie Sanders is the most popular politician in America, uh, as far as I know. But it's not like I've been keeping up on it assiduously either. It really comes down to whether um, the Americans that are going to go vote. How many will go vote? You know, if they're going to, if there's going to be apathy, and I, I tend to believe there's so many people freaked out by Donald Trump that th- those who didn't vote last time are going to make sure they vote this time. Um, but you know, maybe I, I, statistically, I, low low voter turnout is always good for the right. Exactly, and that's why I'm, if if you're if people are as freaked out about Trump as I think they are, then it's going to motivate them to vote uh, against him. Uh, but I wonder if there's a limit to who they'll vote for. You know, I wonder how far our sexism and racism uh, goes in, 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 uh, and heterosexism uh, also goes in, in our society in the United States of America. You know, will, will they vote for a black woman or a gay man or a black man again? Um, uh, or where they say, well, if it, that's my choice. I'm going to go with Donald. I wonder. No, no, I don't. I, I, I'm not worried about that at all. I, we just elected a black president to two terms. I, I, I really, I think it's more economic than anything. I think the reason Trump won is because Hillary Clinton didn't was too was much of a, an elitist snob and idiot to run her campaign correctly and to go to the blue collar states and to actually speak to American workers who are going to suffer because the jobs are not coming back, right? And she was too much of a coward to face up to that and too arrogant, um, too spoiled, really. And I don't know. I mean, the, the candidates I see out there now, 
look, it's gonna, it's probably gonna come down to to, to Bernie, Warren, maybe Biden, Kamala Harris. So I didn't hear that. You cut off for a second. Could you say who, who's it gonna come down to? Uh, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and Bernie. Right. Right. And you know that's that's two women, one of them black, and two old dudes. Yeah. And I actually did hear somebody say recently, a friend of mine, an American here in France, said uh, the reason she didn't want to vote for Bernie is because she didn't want to vote for an old white man. And I really thought we, you, America is losing its mind. In fact, I'm a little disturbed by you asking me the question whether Americans will vote for – of course they will. They'll vote for a woman. They'll vote for a black woman. People are desperate. They'll, they'll vote for somebody that they think is going to steer the ship. You know, uh, Donald Trump was a was was a was a big fu to the system in a lot of ways. We know that. We know that Hillary could have won the election easily if she had won the blue collar Middle West, right? Uh, if she had gone to Wisconsin and 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 Michigan and and if she had done the work there, she could have won. Those were Obama voters that voted for Trump. It's not about that. We confuse social issues with economic issues, and 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 I, I don't know. I, the right profits from that. Because as long as we're bickering among ourselves about you know our, our all our little tribes, we're we're losing sight of the bigger picture. So. I agree, I agree. JQ here on the program talking about some politics over there in France and Europe as well as here in the United States of America. Um, now w we talked about happiness for a, f a few minutes ago. I'm wondering uh, what would be some indicators of happiness. In your view, socially or individually? I guess socially, because we were talking about us, you know, happiness index uh, for certain indexes in, for certain countries is uh, higher, are higher than what we see in the United States of America. Yeah, well, you know, I I I, I know that they run some pretty complex questionnaires past people. Uh, there's whole sections about basic, uh, job satisfaction, family life. I mean, you, you certainly can look at things like drug addiction, uh, suicide rates and so on, uh, and find some very interesting things. That's where you find where the misery is certainly. Um, and both of those things in America and actually in, in most wealthy countries are problematic. Um, yeah, the, 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 they are indicators of uh, of discontent, to say the least. Yeah, and America has a massive problem with with addiction that we're sort of talking about, but it I, I'm not sure if the numbers are dropping or not. You know, uh, and when it comes to suicide, there's some really interesting things happening with that because the 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 highest rising the, the 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 suicide rates that have risen the most if i'm not mistaken are among middle-aged men i have a i have a gun in you know in my mouth right now all right well there you have it uh, uh, <laughs> no just kidding folks bad joke bad joke but i'm telling you it is depressing as a middle-aged man sometimes well, I mean, middle age is depressing, male or female. It's, you know, you're getting older and your, your youth is behind you. And it's, you know, uh, it's basically you, you are a living shipwreck from then on in. Everything starts to sag and droop. And, yeah, and well, it's <laughs> not know. even that so much. It's more about, for me, the idealism uh, turning into cynicism. 
You know, that's what's depressing. When you look when you look around you, and I guess that's a flaw, a weakness for sure. You look around you in your local, uh, you know, community as well as on a grander scale at what's going on with your, you know, with humanity. And for me, at least, I, right now, maybe because Trump is president or what have you, it's depressing. Also, just seeing how a lot of folks uh, are, are not very deep, it seems to me. Most, you know, too many people, I'm not going to say most, are just not very deep in the way they look at their own personal responsibility um, and, and you know, how communities should operate and how, how we should take care of one another and ethics and morality and a sense of history and all of that stuff just does not seem to be important. We're lost, it seems. And that's a bit depressing. It is. Uh, and I, I wish I had some sort of, you know, comforting words of wisdom about that. But uh, I tend to agree that while we have created in, in so many ways, the most comfortable uh, societies and in, 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 in successful even societies ever in terms of material ease and abundance and uh, lifespan and so on and so forth, we've run into challenges based on the fact that once you provide all that, it doesn't necessarily provide meaning. And meaning, purpose, uh, it's far more important to life. And also, you know, as uh, Simone Veil, the, the great female French philosopher wrote back in the 50s, The Need for Roots. That's the English title of, of her great book, um, L'Enracinement in French, uh, a, a seminal work of, of 20th century philosophy that I don't think many people read anymore. Could you could but, you spell her name for me? Uh, Simone, S-I-M-O-N-E, and then Veil is W-E-I-L. Uh, Albert Camus, you know Camus. Yes, I do. One of my favorite writers called her the only great uh, mind of our times at the time, uh, back in the 50s. She's, uh, she was massively influential for a while. She died quite young, uh, and her life story is really interesting. She was a brilliant, brilliant woman. But uh, she wrote a book called L'Enracinement, The Need for Roots in English, and it talked about it, – it's amazing to read it now. Because she was talking about, for instance, the, the, the French unions and workers' rights of the time in the 1950s, you know, during and just after World War II. And yet it is unbelievably relevant to what's happening today because she deals with uh, what a society is supposed to achieve uh, for its citizens and considers at great length the needs of the human psyche or the human soul. You know, not just our physical comforts, but our mental and emotional comforts. And she says the physical ones you can list very quickly, you know, food, shelter, so on and so forth. And she does that. And then she spends 100 pages on the psychological and emotional, the spiritual needs, in, in other words, the, 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 the needs of the psyche, right? The, uh, the needs of the human soul, to use a, uh, an old-fashioned word. And... Many of them come in opposites. You know, we need security, but we also need a bit of risk. But the, we need order, but we also need liberty. Um, we need responsibility. And then she, one of the biggest ones in the title of the book is the need for roots. And for decades and decades, and this is the great problem of capital, capitalism that we started this conversation off with, as it creates massive inequalities, it also tends to cause societies to disintegrate because it does – attack the extended family 
ultimately the nuclear family and community, you know, everything, all our local sense of place. People live long distance lives now and compare themselves to celebrities and, and we're on social media presenting false identities all the time and there is this there is this breakdown of just basic real life you and your family and your neighbors connections right and i think that is what you're addressing and weirdly enough on a sort of broader scale is what we started this conversation off with uh simone veil addresses a lot of that in in this book written in the 1950s and it's still penetrating and powerful and relevant today jq that's a uh, that, that was wonderful uh, that's that's a great place to pause our conversation until next time. Uh, I, I, I want I want to thank you so much for being on the program. What it, once again, uh, artist, writer, musician, and our resident social critic. I know you're going off now to the markets in southern France, right, for a bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be plying my gypsy trade with my little market stand. We can talk about that next time too, because uh, we've talked a lot about the global hobo lifestyle. You know, the history of the hobo, how it be, how he became a sort of symbolic. At, uh, you know, cultural figure and uh, the the artistic underground that I've been a part of does it does it even really exist in the internet age? We've spent whole shows on that. We've never talked about the nuts and bolts of how I pay for doing this. Let's do that next time. I would love it. Yeah, maybe we'll get into that next time. That could be good. Well, have a wonderful time, and uh, I look forward to our next conversation. Take care, brother. All right, you too, brother. Take care. Bye.
from the July 1, 2019 New Yorker magazine, an article by Ariel Levy titled It Girl, Less Bitchy. I miss seeing you on television. An elderly woman named Renee squawked at her neighbor, the actress, comedian, and singer Sandra Bernhardt. They were in front of the stately brick Frederick Fleming House on West 22nd Street, a residence for formerly homeless New Yorkers, where Renee has lived for 16 years. But, honey, you see me all the time, Bernhard replied. She walks her dog, George, along the block daily. Renee, who has no teeth and a quantity of chin hair, eyed Bernhard up and down and told her, You look different on television. Bernhard is starring in the second season of Pose, the Ryan Murphy drama about the gritty, glamorous world of transgendered women and gay men who staged New York's legendary drag balls. She plays an activist nurse at Roosevelt Hospital during the height of the AIDS crisis. We'll put your show on the schedule, Martha Benincos, Fleming House's manager who was passing by, promised. Thank you, sweetheart, Bernhard said. This place keeps the neighborhood grounded in old New York, like there's still a place where people can live and not be pushed out by $20 million apartments. Season two of Pose is set in 1990, when there were still hookers on the piers and Madonna's Vogue video introduced the culture of ballrooms to viewers of MTV. It was a time when Bernhard and Madonna were tight. They were often photographed out together, like a kind of two-headed it girl. It was really fun. We would go to parties and be bitchy. We were bitchy to Joan Rivers, Bernhard said. I had a little crush on her. And I love that people were like, ooh, Madonna like Sandy. Bernhard has been with her partner, Sarah Switzer, for 20 years, but she doesn't use the word lesbian to describe herself. How about sophisticated? How about groovy, sexual, international, hot, swinging? Those are all words that work for me, she said and laughed. She played one of the first queer characters on television, on Roseanne, People used to attack me for not coming out and saying, I'm a dyke, she said. All these tastemakers in the gay world were handing me my ass, and I thought, you don't even get it. I was in the trenches in the 70s breaking all the rules about what sexuality was. Even when I was 16 in Scottsdale, the most conservative place on earth. Bernhardt's father, a proctologist, and her mother, an abstract artist, moved Bernhardt and her three brothers to Arizona from Flint, Michigan, when she was 10 years old. As smart as I am, I didn't really apply myself in school because all I could think about was leaving and becoming this fabulous, international, sophisticated person, she said. From the time she was a child and saw Carol Channing in Hello, Dolly, she knew that she wanted to be a performer. After high school, she went to Israel and worked on a kibbutz for nine months then moved to Los Angeles. She supported herself by working as a manicurist for five years. She clipped cuticles and entertained her clients, who included Victoria Principal, always in a jaunty hat, and Diane Cannon. I became part of whatever was happening at the time, going to Studio One, which was like Studio 54 in L.A., but with all gay men. 
I was the only woman in there. Like Bette Midler, one of Bernhardt's early idols who got her start performing in New York's bathhouses, Bernhardt was embraced by the drag Demimonde. She could relate to drag. Creating a persona was as much a part of her art as singing or stand-up was. I was used to being brash and over-the-top and fun and making declarations and proclamations, she said. Bernhard's edge, her roiling mix of passion, rage, and wit, is what led Martin Scorsese to cast her as Jerry Lewis's stalker in The King of Comedy, her breakout role in 1981. Just getting the role, I had arrived, she said. Deborah Winger was up for it, and I think Meryl Streep. Nobody else could have done it. He was looking for the person I was to make the role work. Now the 64-year-old mother of a college student, Bernhardt, who was dressed in a style she called nautical but nice, in a striped jersey and jeans, has a disarmingly gentle vibe in person. I've gotten less shady, she said. People still want me to be bitchy, but I don't enjoy it anymore. Renee produced a crumpled piece of paper from her pocket and asked for an autograph. To the coolest lady on West 22nd Street, Bernhardt wrote, and her three brothers.
Landange. In the south of France, he is given a chance to flourish amidst vineyards, baguettes, formage. Living large at large, Vandange, through the month of September, do you remember? My soul and mine grew in depth and breadth of awareness and understanding, as that young French woman for two days on the plum farm kept me so enchanted. episode 327 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our resident social critic, J.Q. I'd also like to thank Ariel Levy, the writer. I'd like to thank these musical artists as well. Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Bon Iver, Dr. John and Odetta Holmes, yes, Madison Cunning, The Rose Petals, Branford Marsalis and Terrence Blanchard, too. 
And, oh yeah, by the way, thank you and you and you so much for listening. Until next week, let's give it a go and try to enjoy this one.